As AI bounds ahead, many are rightfully concerned about the risks and ethical issues it raises. Perhaps some of the most practical of these is the potential that AI will be biased against minority populations because of deficiencies in the data used to build it. If true, this would have serious implications for human resources and hiring. Today, Brent sits down with Keith Sonderling, a commissioner on the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC. Sonderling delves into the challenges and opportunities presented by the integration of AI into the workplace, particularly in hiring and employment decisions. And he emphasizes the complexity of AI, as well as the difficulty, yet necessity, of regulating it so that it can benefit everyone. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Keith Sonderling, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Um, uh, I'm really interested in getting into this topic of how um, uh, the federal government, through the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, is thinking about uh, the introduction of AI um, and proliferation of AI inside the economy and the workforce and um, some of the challenges um, and opportunities, I think, that, that, it, that it presents. Um, but before we get into all of that, uh, I'd like you to take a few minutes and just talk about yourself a little bit, where you came from, how um, the, the, the path that you followed to become the Keith Sonderling that you are right now um, and, the, and the people who kind of helped you along the way. Yeah, well, um, I... I grew up in Florida. I, I was a, a Florida man, happily living in uh, Boca Raton, Florida, in Palm Beach County, which is a very nice place to be. Uh, I was a labor and employment lawyer uh, practicing uh, uh, labor and employment law in Florida, defending corporations uh, against the very kind of uh, claims and suits that I'm now on the other side of in the, in the federal government. So I had experience there. And then in 2017, I had the opportunity to basically change my life and and give up the beautiful palm trees and the ocean of South Florida and move to Washington, D.C., where I joined the the U.S. Department of Labor at the Wage and Hour Division. I had never been in government before. I had never lived in Washington, D.C. before, and I was thrown into the mix. And as you know very well, the Wage and Hour Division is a uh, not only a law enforcement agency, but also a heavy regulatory agency as well with very significant rulemaking authority under uh, big ticket laws like the Fair Labor Standards Act, the Family Medical Leave Act. So I really got my administrative law lesson and government agency uh, lessons pretty uh, quickly. So um, I was the uh, deputy administrator there. I was the uh, acting administrator um, there as well uh, at that agency. And then in uh, the summer of 2019, I was nominated to be a commissioner on the uh, EEOC. And, uh, you know, for employment lawyers, uh, the EEOC really is the crown jewel agency when it comes to uh, workplace laws and workplace discrimination. Um, I was confirmed by the U.S. Senate in uh, September of 2020, and I have a term that ends uh, in July of 2024. So um, for a labor and employment lawyer, who didn't have much experience with Washington, D.C. or government, I am uh, I now certainly uh, do. And it's been an incredible experience. So tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about um, how you wound up uh, with an interest in labor law. 
um, to begin with? How did that how did that evolve for you? Well, you know, I wish I had a, a, a more magical story, but when you sometimes you're a summer associate at a law firm and uh, you, you get to test out the different practice areas. And for mm-hmm. me, um, I really uh, clicked and got along with the labor and employment team. And then uh, that's where I started working. And then from mm-hmm. there, uh, <laughs> the rest is history. So, you know, you can't, uh, you know, especially going into law or any career, you, you don't really know until you start working um, where you're going to be. So, uh, so did you it, have, it was not a, something I, I was, uh, born knowing I wanted to do. <laughs> right. So did you, but even from the standpoint of the law, I mean, you, you made a decision to go to law school to get, you know, become an attorney. Uh, and did you have any idea like, you know, labor law is kind of interesting or was it, uh, was it really just, you know, the, the summer, uh, uh, experience of, of working in law firm, a law firm or multiple law firms, where you uh, began to hone that, hone that, hone in on the subject matter. So you've got, you've told me that they, you got along well with the team, uh, but I'm I'm curious about. Uh, you could have practiced many different kinds of law. Uh, what what's particularly interesting to you about uh, labor law or what did you find interesting about it? Well, once you dive into it, you realize how complex it is and how mm-hmm. it really is based upon federal law. That's the floor of the law, unlike areas of uh, other laws, which are, you know, more state based and uh, the complexities of federal labor and employment law are really significant um, from a legal side. And then when you dive into the policy side of it, it's really interesting because it's an area of law that people understand because everyone has applied for a job. Everyone has been paid wages. Everyone has tried to get a promotion in the workforce uh, or, or had a performance review. So once you dive into it, you see that these are very real issues that impact everyone worldwide. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. really interesting mm-hmm. when you think about that because you're, you're dealing with people and you're dealing with their livelihoods mm-hmm. uh, and you're dealing with civil rights protections, you know, here at the EEOC related to anti-discrimination at the Department of Labor, the ability to get paid, the the ability to have safe work environments. So it really is an area of law that impacts everyone. And for me, um, that is something that certainly drew me to it once I uh, began diving into it. That's really interesting. Okay, so that's a good segue into our main topic uh, today, which is how we ought to be thinking about uh, artificial intelligence uh, in the workplace and the particular opportunities and challenges that AI, uh, obviously the regulation of AI is um, one of the hottest uh, public policy issues around right now, uh, both from a kind of consumer safety and, um, you know, we've got really big picture regulatory questions to deal with there. Uh, and then we've got, okay, everybody has to work or almost everybody has to work. Uh, 80% of jobs we are, you know, it's estimated anyway, are going to be impacted by, uh, artificial intelligence. Um, some of them more significantly than others. Um, Tell, tell me about just sort of how the EEOC uh, broadly is thinking about AI and its impact on employment, and then um, how you, because you're you're a commissioner and 
commission, different commissioners have different ideas, but uh, about a, a, every regulatory issue that comes up. So I'd like to hear about kind of the the approach the agency is taking, and then what your what your thoughts are. What are what are your guiding principles around AI? Yeah, absolutely. And I think first it's important to talk about you know, how we got here with AI in the workplace. Um, and that really the proliferation of artificial intelligence in all aspect of human resources um, for some time now. And as you noted, AI regulation and how do you regulate AI is the hottest topic in Washington, D.C. by far. Um, and that really started recently with ChatGPT coming online at the end of last year. And suddenly now everyone knows what artificial intelligence is. Everyone has been able to use it. It's been accessible and you could see uh, its power. So a lot of the conversations in D.C. about how do we regulate this really deal with the generative AI side of it. But in employment, there's also been the use of machine learning and actually having artificial intelligence to make employment decisions for years now and well before the generative AI side. And I do want to talk briefly about the implications of generative AI because it is coming into employment as well. And that's where we see a lot of these new statistics. So everyone has at this point seen the Goldman stack statistic that 300 million jobs are going to be displaced. The world economic forum has put out uh, similar statistics about 85 million jobs being displaced by AI. And a lot of that now is gaining more attention because you're dealing with knowledge workers. So before a lot of the early conversations related to displacing workers were really about automation. And that and those robots, literally robots in factories. And that was a conversation that really didn't interest all industries because if you think about it, who who gets impacted the most by that? Manufacturing, retail maybe fast food that can actually buy robots to displace workers. And, you know, you know all the stats on how much cheaper it is to have a robot on a line than a worker with salary, overtime, healthcare. So now um, the generative AI side is coming for everyone, lawyers, accountants, doctors, uh, screenwriters, as we're seeing. And that sort of has now raised the issue of AI in employment to a uh, a much more uh, higher stake. Can, can, I, even can I ask you? Can I ask you a question before we? The, uh, it's a very important insight and something I talk about a lot, which is exactly what you said. Previous rounds of automation, uh, our technological transition. Uh, I think this is automation. This is just cognitive automation rather than physical automation. Uh, it's it, it's robots for the brain. Basically, is um, is what we're uh, we're dealing with when we talk about AI, and um, and so we you're right we you know in the past automation has always hit the less skilled less educated. These uh, technologies are uh, the more education you have, the more exposed your job is to the impact of AI. How do you think that's going to affect advocacy around? AI. Have you, or maybe you haven't thought about this, but you know, I get the feeling that attorneys and accountants are going to be more effective in advocating for their uh, their positions in the economy than factory workers were. But I, I wanted to get your take on that. Well, I think from an HR perspective, from a corporate perspective, now that you have generative AI replacing those knowledge workers whose jobs were always safe from automation um, before. 
it's, it's going to impact uh, groups differently, significantly. And you think about now, what does this mean that I want to use generative AI to replace work, knowledge workers? And who is that going to impact? And what are the potential discrimination trends that can come out of there? So if you think about this, a lot of the, the trends when you have large reduction in workforces, whether it's the economy or otherwise, who does it hit first? It hits the older workers who are paid more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it hits the younger workers who first in, first out. And if you mm-hmm. look at some of the, the uh, what we care about, how it impacts certain protected characteristics, this is sort of my caution to companies now engaging in these discussions um, where it, it's now across industries. Um, how are you going to ensure that those potential layoffs, that those potential groups you're going to outsource don't have a discriminatory impact? And, you know, a lot of companies have spent a significant amount of time effort, publicity on diversifying their workforce, on recruiting Mm -hmm. from different areas, uh, lawful um, recruiting in different areas to get a more diverse candidate slate to to have selections. And we've seen the articles on how that is occurring right now. And if you're going to just lay off the first people in, you can essentially wipe out a lot of that work you've done, and it's going to have a more drastic impact on certain protected characteristics um, Mm. because that's the makeup of the nature of your new workforce and similar on the aid side. But this is still, you know, and you'll hear a theme throughout this conversation, you know, that is companies understand that and they know how to do that. And all this is, it's basically a very modern high tech reduction in workforce, right? Mm. So from a legal liability perspective, that's how companies have to be looking at this is that Mm. if we're going to display certain groups with chat GPT or generative AI, what is the impact that's going to have from uh, a breakdown perspective of our workforce to not have those claims that it was a discriminatory intent or a discriminatory impact relating to those assessments. So So, it's new new problems, but um, old... Um, traditional ways of how to handle this. So if I understand you correctly, like this creates some new challenges around kind of disparate impact uh, assessments of, you know, not that anybody is uh, intentionally discriminating uh, against anyone, but in the way that the technology impacts the workforce, we may see older workers, um, feeling a disproportionate amount of impact and and then opening then op- then the opens the company to a charge of age discrimination not because they're actually discriminating on the basis of age and saying let's get rid of the old people but because uh, the the technology uh, has the effect of taking the kinds of tasks that those workers are doing and automating it disproportionately. Yeah. And to add on that, too, you know, and this is where I see from my position here, it's also for the older workers, are they going to be given the same opportunities to be able to train on these new systems? So let's say, Mm -hmm. you know, you're augmenting now. It's a big thing, the human in the loop. And okay, we're not Mm going to replace you with ChatGPT. We're going to have you make it your job more efficient, right? You're Mm going to do a lot more. What used to take you three hours is going to take an hour. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, you need to make sure that training is applicable to everyone and older workers who may not be as familiar with the technology need that same training in addition to disabled workers. Yeah. Um, you know, now we're bringing in a lot more advanced technology and for workers who may have a vision impairment, hearing impairment, um, there may be reasonable accommodations required 
to implement these systems. And you could just see how those groups may be susceptible to impact as well. There was another study out there saying also that ChatGPT job displacement is going to impact women and African-Americans more than um, white men. So we're seeing a lot of these very um, same themes you've seen with other types of layoffs. It's just going to happen, I think, faster because of the push to implement generative AI in all companies across the board. And when you move really fast implementing new programs, new technologies in human resources, you know, there can be significant civil rights implications related mm-hmm. to that if it's not done carefully and properly. Yeah, that, I, that's uh, interesting. On the disability side, one of the things I've noticed and been surprised by, uh, pleasantly surprised by, is the way that I see um, technology actually helping to level up um, people with less skill or maybe um, uh, certain types of disabilities, particularly cognitive disabilities, where um, the the chat function that's being used actually helps to uh, helps workers get past certain challenges that they might have in certain jobs that involve um, social interaction, for instance, people with autism or Asperger's or other cognitive disabilities where you've got a, a GPT coach that's kind of helping people both on perceiving social emotional kind of interaction, but also coming up with the prompts for this is what I say when I encounter um, difficulty. So uh, it, it, it's, it's interesting how diverse the impact um, of the technology is going to be. And for every kind of potential problem, there, there seems to be a potential benefit kind of on the other side of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this, you know, the generative AI is now allowing this conversation to come to front page news of which is different actually than what I've been working on for the last few years and what the mm-hmm. EEOC has been working on, believe it or not. And, and that is kind of, you know, to differentiate the two. So you have the generative AI replacing workers, but now what we've been concerned with and I've been dealing with, and you talk about the benefits and the potential harm is actually using AI to make employment decisions, right? This is different Mm -hmm. than doing Mm -hmm. the work. We're actually using Mm -hmm. AI to make decisions once made by humans in human resources. And we saw this market start to take off in 2016, 2017, when there was really a a, a rush in funding to artificial intelligence within human resources. Because if you think about it, a lot of companies have been using AI in other areas of the business, such as logistics, making widgets faster, you know, just accounting documents, and then there was a need, too, for how do we make HR efficient? How do we you know, use these tools to make the employment decision-making process faster, more efficient, more economic? And a big driver of that is how do we remove bias mm-hmm. from employment decisions? Because that's the reason the EEOC exists. That's the reason we have all the charge of discrimination, all of our lawsuits. You know, we collect over $500 million a year from employers violating these laws. So there's obviously a problem related to employment decision-making and discrimination. So you have a lot of very smart um, computer engineers saying, okay, well, how do we tackle these issues? And what is the bigger drive, drive, what drives the bias? That's the humans. So how do we make that more, remove the human from the equation and allow the computers to make that decision? And although that may sound as a way to potentially remove bias in human decision-making, if it's not properly designed, if it's not carefully used, it can actually discriminate more than any one individual mm-hmm. uh, human. And 
Let me just explain you know, how prolific the software is. There's AI that writes job descriptions, screens resumes, chats with applicants, conducts job interviews, predicts if an employee will accept an offer, uh, predicts what the compensation should be. Once you get into the um, company, there's AI that uh, does your performance reviews. There's AI that tells you what you're going to do. There's AI that does scheduling. Um, and then there's AI that can tell you you're fired if you don't hit your goals. So basically, there's AI and machine learning, with different than the generative side again, that is um, from A to Z of the employment relationship. So everything function that HR has done before, there's software out there to try to automate those um, functions as well. Yeah, that's uh, <clears throat> we see this all over the place. I mean, this idea that somehow machines are more objective than people are, I, I think, is a fundamentally flawed notion because, of course, the machines are built by people, um, and uh, and therefore they tend to carry implicitly, I think, uh, some of the biases that human beings naturally have. We see this a lot in, on the criminal justice side uh, where, um, you know, we have to be very careful because the, the machines um, are not uh, necessarily all the, as adept at context questions around sentencing, uh, for instance, uh, that, that need to be taken into account. Uh, on the other hand, people are not perfect, right? Uh, judges and prosecutors and uh, attorneys have biases that they bring, so it's really very tricky to figure out how you um, how you separate how which is actually better, right? Uh, in terms of uh, bias decision making, uh, and I think this idea that somehow this, the machine is going to solve the bias problem. It's in some cases it may, it may help, in other cases it may hurt, and we're going to have to be really attentive. Um, and this has sort of been my mission in all mm -hmm. of this to raise awareness. So we can't yeah. tell HR departments and corporations what they're not allowed to use, what programs they can use, and what programs they can't use. That's just not mm -hmm. what I believe our uh, our mission is here. Um, if they want to use tools that are going to discriminate. They can. Will there be consequences? Absolutely. So, I, you know, from from my perspective, I've just been able, been talking about and trying to give you know my own guidance on saying, okay, now that we know there's software for A to Z of the employment relationship, um, what are the benefits of using each to remove bias, and then what are the potential harms? And that's been my consistent theme. So, for all of these programs, I can tell you how it could if it's designed properly and carefully used, which are two different things, how it can actually help companies eliminate bias. But if it is used improperly or not designed the right way, it can scale the bias. And let me explain exactly what I mean to that. You know, so much of the conversation related to bias in AI is, a, is around the data discrimination and disparate impact. And, you know, the garbage in, garbage out theory, pretty, you know, standard across. And the employment example is used pretty often because, you know, what is the data set when you come, when it comes to employment? And that is more of a, a computer science term data set. It's not one we use in labor and employment. Mm -hmm. But what mm -hmm. does that actually mean? It means your applicant pool, right? Or your current workforce. So if your applicant pool or your current workforce is made up of one, predominantly one race, one gender, one national origin, one religion, you know, the, the machine learning is going to look through those patterns and see, you know, what are the patterns at this workforce that make these workers 
stay in the workforce or make them productive. And if the overwhelming majority of, of that is based upon a protected characteristic, it's just going to amplify and replicate the status quo. And, you know, there's a really a kind of classic example related to this. And, you know, one of these companies went to a resume screening AI program and, you know, said, here are my best workers. Go f- use the machine learning to find out what makes these workers so great. You know, what are the patterns in their resumes and skills that have allowed them to succeed at this company? And the company came used the machine learning, came back and said the most likely indicators of success at your company is uh, having been named uh, Jared and playing light, having played high school lacrosse. So, you know, that is an example. And that's a program for, that was used for diversity and inclusion. Yeah. But you could see the issues there. If, if that is, yeah. you know, if all the, you know, all, all the best employees are named Jared or having played high school lacrosse, that's what it's going to look for and not the actual underlying skills of what right. makes those, which is, you know, nothing to do with the protected characteristic. And there's other examples of, you know, using these um, applicants or the current people in the role to um, rank what applicants should look like or should be like. And this example, basically, um, all, if you were a woman, played women's sports uh, in college or belonged to a women's club, if that was on your resume, you were automatically lowered because that um, was not the vast majority of who was in the applicant pool. So the computer thought, well, there must be something wrong if there's only like let's say three women out of 100 applying, we must just give them the lowest ratings um, to begin with. So you can see that's not on, that's on the data set and that's ensuring a, a diverse data set reflective of your applicant board, reflective of your local jurisdiction. And that's what the EEOC mm-hmm. has required. That's what the Office of Federal Contract Compliance uh, requires as well. But it, that's sort of in a way that, that disparate impact data, you know, that wasn't proof of a misogynistic intent to lower mm-hmm. the scores of, of women or only hire, you know, white men. It's just a function of the data fed to the algorithm in the first place. So that's where a lot of the conversation is related to AI discrimination across the board, not just in the employment space, the housing space, mm-hmm. the finance space, the credit space. Mm-hmm. You've seen the other examples. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, I'm also saying, okay, well, if you do have AI that is carefully designed, right? And let's just say that's a diverse data set, that's a diverse applicant pool, or it's one representative that's not going to be discriminatory, that's going to give you those discriminatory results. So what happens if if you do all that perfect? If it's not carefully used, then you could still have discrimination. You could have intentional discrimination. And you may be saying, well, how can AI intentionally discriminate? It doesn't have a mind of its own. Um, you know, AI is only using what's being fed to it. So say, you know, you feed the algorithm proper information. And then in this space, you have a biased HR manager go in there and eliminate older workers, eliminate women. Um, With a few clicks, you can cause more discrimination than we've ever Mm -hmm. seen before. You know, it took the stat is for a normal person in talent acquisition looking at resumes, they look at them for about seven seconds. So if I have Mm -hmm. bias and I want to eliminate older workers, I have to look for the college graduation date. Or, you know, if I want to eliminate females, I have to look for female sounding names and I have to physically throw those in the trash. But here with a few clicks in 0.6 seconds, you could eliminate hundreds of thousands of workers from an applicant pool instantly. And all those workers, you know, would have a potential claim as applicants Mm -hmm. because they were excluded because of a protected characteristic. So you can see how these cases can really um, balloon fairly quickly about who is actually 
you know, using the program, and even if it's if it's done right, it can still be used the wrong way. And yeah. that's sort of and where the care needs to become in using these programs. And now you have more access to data. And yeah. one more point on this, which these computers allow you to do, is it, it's much more complicated than just saying, oh, this is a name that sounds from this national origin. You know, the, the, the machine learning can go through and pick up patterns that may be indicative of being related to a protected characteristic that a human probably maybe wouldn't even be able to find out and then, you know, eliminate those based upon those requests. And what's so tricky here in employment law that the employer is liable for the employment decision. No one else can make the employment decision other than the employer. So it doesn't matter if a vendor's Mm. tool makes Mm. this decision or if it's done Mm. on a, a, a spreadsheet by an employee, the liability is going to be on the employer. I'm using these tools. That's really interesting. The, um, yeah, the, the, the beyond, you know, like this idea that somebody, you know, who is clicking on the boxes of what should be considered, um, you know, and what shouldn't be considered. Uh, there's also these technical debt issues of, uh, you know, mistakes in the underlying code that work their way into not just one system, but into many systems. Uh, and then it weeding that stuff out, uh, it, it, you know, it, it could generate discrimination. And then once it's discovered, it would, it may have replicated across multiple systems that then have to be weeded out, you know, and corrected in order to get the flaw out of the code. You know, it's, this is, a uh, enormously complicated, potentially complicated issue. I mean, it's, it's in a sense, uh, and this is the next question I wanted to ask you is like, does the EEOC have the tools do you, you think that it needs currently legal tools, regulatory tools, uh, to effectively, um, oversee, I mean, to, to, I should carry out its mission as it relates to, the use of these technologies. So I take a different position than a lot of people on this, especially in Congress who think that federal agencies like mine, the FTC, the SEC should have much more power and authority. Uh, I respect uh, the different branches of government and separation of power. So in, in my position in the executive branch, it's easy for me to say we'll enforce what laws Congress pass. And if they give us uh, AI specific authority, we'll certainly um, use that. But for the, um, for the time being, um, I believe that you know our civil rights laws, um, which really in employment are the global standard, if you mm. look at other mm. countries, mm. Um, regulate employment decisions. And that is all we need to look at. And as I just explained to you, because the liability mm-hmm. is on the employer, we only have jurisdiction over employers, unions, and staffing agencies. Because that the liability rests there, you know, that is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at, and we, our investigators understand how to look at an employment decision and how to see if there was bias in that decision, whether it was a, a one-off of a manager sexually harassing one person or it was a policy and culture of the company to allow for harassment, right? We can backtrack discrimination from there. That's what we know. At the current time, we will never be able to regulate the technology. You know, we mm-hmm. don't have the tools. We don't have the, the, the knowledge base. I will never understand exactly how the algorithms works because I'm a labor and employment lawyer and I'm not, you know, I don't have a PhD from MIT, but, but you don't need that to be able to regulate 
and enforce the law in this space. Mm. And, and that's what I'm really trying to relay, that don't be distracted by what's going on in Congress if there should be a new AI commission or if we should have new laws um, or what's going on in some state and local jurisdictions related to AI and employment. Federal law applies equally to employment decisions, whether it's made by a human or robot, and it has since the 1960s. And you can't lose focus on that. Mm -hmm. And in the sense that um, are are we ever going to be able to get into the algorithms if our investigator shows up and and have a fight over what this algorithm actually did? No. Mm -hmm. Just like right now, you know, there's so much talk about the black box of an algorithm. Right now in employment discrimination, we deal with the black box of somebody's brain. And we Mm -hmm. don't know how people make employment decisions, Mm -hmm. whether if Mm -hmm. they have a discriminatory intent or not. Mm -hmm. So we have to figure that out right now. And that hasn't been easy because who admits that they fired somebody because of their race? Who admits they fired somebody because of their religion? Nobody. So what are we left with now, right? We haven't figured out how to to mind read people's decisions related Mm -hmm. to employment decisions. And I think we can't hold AI to a higher standard until we're Mm -hmm. told to, until they have some kind of um, new law related to that. So for the time being, we're always, we're going to look at the result. Is there employment discrimination? Now we backtrack it. Was it made by a human or was it made by a, a computer? And look, if it was made by a computer, I think there's an argument that, If you're doing it the right way, if you're actually asking the algorithm to look at the skills necessary for that job in that location based upon your company's business needs that you would be able to defend, um, now you have a very audible, transparent um, Mm -hmm. data set of how you got there versus before, oh, let's look at somebody's Mm. squiggly Mm. notes or Mm -hmm. how did this person get the promotion? Oh, because they're golfing buddies with the manager. Mm -hmm. You know, the Mm -hmm. old school tap on the shoulder recruiting policies, which the EEOC Mm -hmm. has warned against for a very long time. You know, that's Mm -hmm. how a lot of employment decisions are made. And this actually, you know, talk about the benefits, even from a law enforcement perspective, not only does it allow the employers to, to actually get to that skills-based approach where there's so much talking about, you know, about the resume, college degrees, I know you've done a lot of work on this. And here is a, a way to get there in the sense where you know, these are the X amount of year requirements that, you know, based on the market, based on this company, this we put in the algorithm and it found these people who had these skills or had adjacent skills that a human wouldn't be able to pick up, which actually would have made them better in the position. And that's how we got to this result versus mm-hmm. why did you hire this person? Uh, I don't know, because, you know, he's worked <laughs> here for a long time or, you know, that's, that, or that, you know, he always shows up or. You know, she's uh, she stays extra hour. Right. I mean, it may not be the most qualified for the person for the job. So what we're, we have right now is um, riddled with issues for a long time and not so transparent anyway. So but now we're going to put this new standard on employers using A.I. when um, human decision making has causes mm-hmm. a lot of issues mm-hmm. as well. So that's just a different yeah. way to look at it. Yeah, and I, I think, think it kind of simplifies it. Yeah, I think that's super helpful uh, that. While we don't have a perfect understanding of how the algorithms work or how they interact with the underlying data sets that they're using, the models that they're using, we at least have a way of asking that question and getting an answer uh, in, a, in an objective sense when, when we're dealing with the, as you said, the black box of the human mind. Uh, that's, that's far less clear um, potentially uh, than than being able to look at the results of a computer generated outcome and then trace it back 
to what what are the factors, what are the weights being used here on various factors. Uh, that that is actually I, that is a very helpful insight into uh, increasing the transparency of employment decisions. Exactly, and and I think that's just a way we need to look at this. And and to your point too about you know how do we regulate the technology? I think you know from a, a legislative perspective about giving the EEOC or other agencies more authority to for these tech companies to disclose their algorithm. You've heard so much about that. And again, so if if employers have to do that, and you're seeing some agencies trying to to get there through letters or, or, or otherwise if there's subpoenas, I just think that's sort of a, a misdirection until you have those underlying skills within the federal government agencies that you're just going to have more information that you're not going to know what to do with in a civil law or criminal law enforcement investigation when you have the results sitting right there, which you do know how to deal with and mm-hmm. potentially with more data. So that that's where my mindset is on this. Mm-hmm. It's a little different than, than others mm-hmm. and saying, well, there's a positive, not only for the workforce development side of this, but there's also mm-hmm. uh, a potential policy positive for the law enforcement side of this mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And having more data. And I know there's generally such a fear of having, you know, more, more data that could be audible, that could be discoverable. But in this sense, I just think that mm-hmm. HR has never had this level, could never have had this level of transparency before um, for, for most um, employment decisions. So let's um, pull back to the to the global setting. Um, you've already mentioned that uh, sort of the way the U.S. approaches employment law is really kind of the uh, the, the standard um, for much of the rest of the world. Um, and I, I I'm pretty sure that I've seen that you've been over in in Europe looking at their you know how they're grappling how the European Union and European countries are grappling with this. What do you see happening over there? Is any of it um, is any of it worth thinking about doing in the American setting, or are we are we better off kind of sticking with what we've got rather than looking to other countries to to help us figure out how to do it better? I don't think uh, similar to how GDPR changed a lot of U.S. company standards relating to uh, data privacy. I don't think we're going to have a choice here because in the absence of a federal U.S. standard, what you're seeing is uh, not only in in Europe, and, and I'll explain that in a moment, but state and local governments are starting to legislate on AI broadly and specifically. So um, in, in Europe, the EU AI Act, um, which is going through the first comprehensive uh, AI regulation, um, it basically takes a risk-based approach to using AI technologies. And there you have the government telling you this category, uh, whatever your product is, it's going to fit in a risk category from um, low risk to unacceptable risk. They've said the use of employment is in the highest risk category possible mm. alongside mm. with dispatch of emergency services, uh, critical infrastructure, biometrics. So um, you can see where they feel about um, employment-based decisions using AI. And what that does is it requires robust disclosure, requires consent, and it requires um, yearly audits, just a lot more to it than using it. And what we have here in the United States, you know, Illinois in 2020 was the first state to come out with a specific um, regulation related to AI in employment. And they said there for video interviews, um, basically making it almost impossible to use facial recognition software that judges you know the movements of your face 
to make an employment decision without consent, without certain data protections. Um, and Maryland followed not too long after, just making it almost impossible um, to use with all the hoops you have to go through. So that's a very specific use of you know AI in video interviews. Um, as you know, at the EEOC, we have to all uses of employment, uh, AI and employment we cover. And that's where, you know, the hottest topic in AI specific regulation to employment, really one of the first laws to go into effect nationwide related to AI is in New York and their local law 144, which um, is related to uh, automatic employment decision tools, automated employment decision tools, AETD, they call it. And it basically requires uh, not only the consent, but the yearly audits, pre-deployment audits, before using it to test for disparate impact. Um, it also requires those audits to be done by an independent auditor and to post those results as well. Mm. And but but the limitation there is, and this is where you get confused with um, state and local law versus federal law. They're only requiring those audits on hiring and promotion, and they're only requiring it for race, sex, and ethnicity. So it can give a false sense of security. You know, mm. whether you're in Illinois, New York. Um, saying, okay, well, we're complying with the state law. We're okay with the EEOC. Well, you're not because you know, mm. if you're going to be doing an audit for race, sex, and ethnicity, the EEOC is going to say, okay, well, where's the disparate impact for age? Where's the disparate impact for religion? Disabil- you know, all these um, mm-hmm. disability, all these other, other categories, yeah. categories which we protect um, that are equally as important as the other ones. And obviously it's more than just hiring and promotions, right? Wages, training, benefits, terminations. You can, you know, that would also have to be audited for us as well to the extent it's being used in that category. So I just fear that it gives a false sense of security to employers in those areas. And California is obviously having some um, proposals uh, as well related to employment. Just a fear that you know, complying with this one law, then you're off the hook and you're not. And so I think what you're seeing here is a theme between EU and um, New York is this pre-deployment audit. Right. So if that's being required, and I think this is where it's going to answer your question, if you're going to have to do that for use in Europe, if you're going to have to do that in big cities like New York or California moves forward there, then, you know, for large multi-state, multinational employers who have the ability to design and afford these softwares, at what point now is that becoming the the federal standard? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we've seen that in another context in my area with pay transparency, right? There's nothing requiring federal law in federal law, it requires you to disclose the job salary range for advertising. But what you saw was New York, Washington State, California require pay transparency. So for multi-state employers, are they going to really have, you know, 30 different systems to apply, have job advertisements in, you know, Colorado where you have to disclose the pay versus Florida and Texas where you'll never have to disclose the pay? But what it does is just it, it basically creates that nationwide standard of now, well, it's just easier to disclose the pay range for all of our jobs across the country. So that's what I see happening here with AI um, auditing. So if you're going to be required to do it for some of the larger states or, or countries, um, it, it's honestly not a bad idea to be doing that anyway. And it's best practice. A lot of people do employment audits all the time, whether it's for pay equity, whether it's for overtime, uh, minimum wage, um, or the like, contractor status. So I think that there is a familiarity with doing employment audits um, now. Uh, lawyers know how to do it in-house counsel. And but if that's where it's going it, with AI, you could sort of be doing that now and be in a better position than somebody who's not doing it. Because if you do get an EEOC investigation you, and you're doing these 
voluntary audits um, yourself, you at least will have prevented discrimination from potentially occurring. But the mandate of that from the federal government, obviously, that would require a lot of uh, legislative changes. But so I'm, I'm curious, though, isn't that different than the way that we typically enforce these kinds of civil rights? I mean, we we wait for somebody to demonstrate a harm be, or to, to claim a harm and demonstrate it before we enforce. We don't we don't actually maybe I'm wrong about this. You can correct me. Um, we don't say ahead of time, show me that you aren't going to discriminate uh, and and do these um, kinds of audits pre-deployment um, uh, to, prove to <laughs> prove to the government that you aren't uh, engaged in invidious discrimination uh, before you've done anything. Um, we... It, do I have that right? Or yeah, so the EEOC is, is unique in that side where it's not, it's not like OSHA. It's not like the Wage and Hour Division or other enforcement agencies. We are charge-driven. So for uh, us to begin an investigation except for you know a commissioner charge where a commissioner can bring their own case, we it relies on the employees coming forward and saying, I believe I was discriminated against because of this protected characteristic. And then that allows us to start an investigation. So unlike other areas like the Office of Federal Contract Compliance where they have randomly selected for audits and you have to go through that procedure and have shown that you were doing what you're supposed to do on the uh, recruiting side, that is not like that for federal uh, uh, laws we enforce here at the EEOC. So that requirement that these state or foreign governments are putting on is not required under, under federal law. And yes, are you saying now are we going to spend all these resources when we don't have to do this and we're not required to do this? That That is a, a great question. And that is one where, you know, you you'd see where the confusion is. Well, now if, if my competitor is doing it, should I be doing it too? Because if they do get an EEOC charge, they'll have a lot more information to defend their case um, than we will. And if we're going to be using these tools, should we be doing it as a best practice to prevent employment discrimination because of the potential risk of the scaling of it here, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's more of a, a business decision mm -hmm. um, and one that you can do in good faith compliance that in the event, it ever happens, you have a lot more records of, tr mm -hmm. of actually. This is what we did. System. This is what this we, is what did, we to did to avoid it. Go, yeah. you know, and look, if you're faced with an investigation by the EEOC or any federal agency and you say, well, we bought these AI tools, we bought them for this reason, we have company policies related to using tr AI transparently, we've created handbook, only people who are allowed to use the software are trained HR professionals who've worked with the vendor. We do yearly audits. We test we, before we ever allow it to make a decision on someone's livelihood. You know, we did find issues and we adjusted some of our skills requirement to, to make sure it didn't have that impact. Or there's nothing you could do because there's only five people in the world that can do this mm. job and they're mm -hmm. all this national origin or, or race. That's a defense, in my opinion. And mm -hmm. versus somebody else who say, well, we just bought the software to diversify our workforce. You know, we, we took all the vendors representation that we're going to get the most diverse candidates and it's going to help us take a skills based approach. And we just let it go. Who's going to be in a better position? Right. So I, I think having that um, tool in your tool shed, if you are investigated by the government, puts you in a better position. But that's certainly mm -hmm. not required, and I can't see that being required any time, even though in some jurisdictions uh, that, that's where they're heading. Yeah. 
Keith, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing, the keen eye that you're applying to this, and the, and the way that you're bringing all of your history and expertise as a, a labor attorney and as a, a civil servant into this um, into this conversation. We're f- very fortunate to have people like you um, working in uh, in the government and. Um, I look forward to continuing the conversation uh, after, uh, you know, in the next few months. How is this, how is the situation changing? How's the, how's the evolution of the technology coming? So I want to thank you again for being on and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you for having me and thank you for all the great work you're doing at AEI, specifically related to our areas with uh, workforce uh, development. Uh, It is very, very helpful and uh, always interesting to read. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.